Heavenly Father, um, the greatest need of this hour is for our eyes to be open. As we press into the words of Scripture, that you would take away any barriers, any impediments, any distractions, any blinders, for me especially, opening the Word, that you would give clarity to the Word, and that you would magnify, Father God, your name in everything we see today, Father. We would be so enamored and completely taken by the picture of Jesus Christ in this passage, in these passages we're about to read, that we would be transformed into the image of Christ, Father. Help that happen today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, we read this passage. I'm going to read it, and then we'll go to the text for this morning. That says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So sometimes when you read a passage in Scripture, you see the author use a word or a concept that we're familiar with to explain a point. It's an analogy or a metaphor. They use a, a word or concept that we know to explain a reality that they're trying to show us and clarify it. But sometimes when you read a passage like this, the word or concept is not simply there to clarify a point. But the word or concept exists explicitly and ultimately to point to the reality being spoken of. In other words, the truth that is being expressed in the scripture is the very reason that that word exists in the first place. That we as human beings have that word in our lexicon. And so when you read it, you're actually looking at not just a picture of something. You are looking at the ultimate purpose for that word or concept. And what we see in Hebrews 3 is an example of the latter for the word house. Why do we have the concept of house in our language? Is it just a, a, a building, a self-standing structure that people live in? Is it just a, a group of people who are connected biologically that live together? Is that the reason we have the word house ultimately? And the answer is no. The ultimate reason we know the word house, the concept of a house, is because of what Hebrews 3 tells us here. We, it says, those who have faith in Christ are his house. A people redeemed by Jesus Christ for God. And so when every other house that you can conceive of in this world is merely dust, 
and is forgotten, one house will remain. His house. The house that God built through Christ. And last week, as we were going through the book of Ruth, we came to this section. We're really like rounding the last corner in Ruth. Next week will be our last sermon in Ruth. Um, And we're looking at this text that talks about these two houses. Um, Boaz redeems Ruth uh, and marries her, or he's about to marry her. And these witnesses who are nearby bless him with a blessing that focuses on these two specific houses, the house of Israel and the house of Perez. And last week we looked at the house of Israel and we saw um, that although it carries significance for Boaz and for his immediate home and for his offspring to come, its ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose of mentioning the house of Israel to Boaz was to point to Christ and to the house that God is building through Jesus. And this week is no different, but we'll be focusing on the other house, the second house. So if you have your Bibles, and I I hope that you do, please grab them and open them to Ruth 4. Excuse me. We're going to be looking at two verses, Ruth 4, 11 through 12. Here it is. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. They're witnesses of the redemption that Boaz just secured for Ruth. And then they say, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So two houses. Two houses, the house of Israel and the house of Perez. And last week we saw that the house of Israel was built up by Rachel and Leah. And it is actually the house originally that was promised to Abraham and to Isaac. So the house of Israel is this house that would comprise a multitude of nations, a multitude of different peoples, not just biological relatives to Abraham. And this is only ever accomplished throughout the narrative of Scripture, through Jesus Christ and through his work on the cross. It is by the blood of Jesus that God has reconciled, as Todd was saying this morning in the liturgy, through propitiation, reconciled all that were to be his, all that would have faith in him. And they become the household of God that we read about in Hebrews 3. But now we're turning to the house of Perez, from the house of Israel to the house of Perez. And so what's the purpose of mentioning this man Perez. Who who is he exactly? And to answer that question, what we need to do is we need to take a glimpse at the very end of the book of Ruth. If you look at the closing verses in this book, starting with verse 18, chapter 4, verse 18, you're going to see this genealogy. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered, of course, David. So Boaz isn't just related to Israel, to Jacob, and to his house, the first house mentioned, but he's also related to Perez. 
Perez is six generations removed from Boaz, but they're connected. They're related biologically. And perhaps this is all that the witnesses were saying when they mentioned this blessing. Maybe they they were just trying to connect him to one of his ancestors' house. But interestingly enough, Perez isn't mentioned alone. There are other people mentioned in this blessing. Jacob, can you turn back to, to the slide that just has verse 12 on it? It says here in this one section of the blessing, may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So the blessing explicitly mentions Perez's mother and father. Why those two? Why mention those two in this blessing? And that question actually carries more weight when we reflect on the fact that Perez actually only has two children mentioned in Scripture, two sons that we know of. One of them is Hezron, which we read about. It's Boaz's relative. And the other one's name is Hamul. So he, it's a house that only has two sons. Why is this significant? Why would you bless a family with a multitude of children and focus on a house that only has two offspring that we know of? And the answer has to be, there must be more to this blessing than we actually realize. There must be more than just a superficial reading of the text. And interestingly enough, we will find clues where we left off last week in the book of Genesis. I don't know if you recall, but last week we were looking at the house of Israel. Jacob married two women, Leah and Rachel. And it was through them and through their maidservants that the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, were born. And the fourth of those 12 sons is a man named Judah. So Judah was born into the house of Israel. He's the last biological son of Leah. And for most of the book of Genesis, where he appears, he's actually in the background. He's not a prominent figure. He comes up a few times here and there, except for one chapter, chapter 38 of the book of Genesis. He is a prominent figure there. And I'm going to walk you through the details, but I want to warn you up front, this chapter will not make you like Judah. You will not think of him as a hero after you hear this story. He's not a hero in this story. And yet, for whatever reason, God in his wisdom and his sovereignty desired for this to be recorded of Judah. And we should reflect on that fact, that of all the things that God could have recorded about Judah, he picks this thing, this one event. So Judah leaves his family and he travels south to a place in chapter 38. I'm going to give you this summary here. He travels south to a place called Adullam. And there it says he, he takes as his wife the daughter of a certain Canaanite man named Shua. And this woman, who's unnamed in the scriptures, bears Judah three children, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Follow me so far? It's an interesting story. Just, just wait. Eventually, Er, Ur, Judah's firstborn, grows old enough to be married. And so what Judah does is he goes out and he finds him a wife. He finds a woman by the name of Tamar, and he's going to give this woman to his son in marriage. But this man, Ur, 
Judas firstborn is evil in the sight of God. So evil, in fact, that God puts him to death. And so in response, what Judah does is he tells his second-born son, Onan, to redeem his brother's lineage, just like we see in the book of Ruth, by taking Tamar as his wife. This is the first act of redemption attempted or, or noted in Scripture, interestingly enough, connected to the story of Ruth, which is the showcase of the act of redemption. So Onan, though, um, is also wicked, and he refuses to redeem Tamar, doesn't want to redeem Tamar, does not want to continue his father's or his uh, brother's lineage, and God is not pleased. So guess what happens to Onan? He is also put to death by God. So we're seeing a trend developing with Judah's children. They are not good people. And I don't think that we can blame Judah with all of the things that they say or do But I think we can say it's entirely reasonable to say that his behavior and his character might might be somewhat reflected in their actions, their words, and what they're doing. So again, Jude is not the hero of the story. And if that's not clear to you now, it's about to be clear. So Tamar obviously desires an heir. Tamar desires to have a son to continue her family. She doesn't want to be a widow. And so Judah promises her his third-born son, Shelah. Now, Shelah is too young for marriage at this point in the story. So Tamar is forced to wait as a widow in her father's house until he becomes of age, until he grows up. Now, when the time comes for, for him to redeem her, he's of age now to marry her. For some reason, the Bible does not communicate why, Judah does not give Tamar to Shelah to marry. We don't know why. He just doesn't keep his promise. And she is forgotten as far as he's concerned. But Tamar has not forgotten the promise that he made. And she does not want to die a widow without an heir. So she takes matters into her own hands. She discovers that Judah, who has just lost his own wife, has gone to Timnah to shear some sheep. And so she heads him off at the pass and she pretends to be a prostitute at the beginning of this, or as they enter this city and on the way there. And he ends up paying for her with his signet cord and his staff, except he doesn't know that it's Tamar. He has no clue that it's her. She's wearing a veil. And so she takes, as a down payment, compensation, Judah's signet, his cord, and his staff. These are items that belong to him, and she takes them as a down payment to hold them until he gives her a goat. Don't know why that was what (laughs) the payment was, but it was. Um, And uh, she is now pregnant with his son, with Judah's son. And as that becomes evident, we see this in verse 24 of chapter 38 of Genesis. Listen to this passage. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. 
And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. So Judah realizes the woman that they are about to burn, that he's about to burn, is more righteous than he is, way more righteous than he is. And he's right, not because she's got things dialed in morally. Clearly, that's not the case. She's got some ethical hang-ups as well. But because he is so wretched and wicked himself that her sin, anything that she might have done, pales in comparison to his. And so after this passage, Tamar bears two sons. She had twins. One of them is Perez the other one is Zara. This is how Perez comes to be. This is how he is born. So why this house from such an awful story? What in the world is so important about Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, for this to be included in the blessing? Well, Judah eventually does change for the better, at least from what we can see to some degree, uh, which probably means that this event in Genesis 38, did a number on him. He recognized a great many things were wrong (laughs) and probably repented. Um, But even though Judah is mentioned here and there in later parts of Genesis, the Bible chose Genesis 38 to be what they highlight in his life. This is Judah's character, his life, Genesis 38. Judah is not a good guy. He's not. He's a sinner just like us. But the extraordinary and amazing thing about Judah and about all of his offspring, including Perez and his house, is actually found in Genesis 49. When we get to Genesis 49, Judah and all of his brothers have been gathered around their father, Jacob, Israel. And he's about to die. And remarkably, despite the profound sin and brokenness that the Bible showcased in Genesis 38... We see in Genesis 49 an extraordinary blessing from Jacob to Judah. I want you to to pay attention to the words and language used in these three verses here. Genesis 49, verse 8 through 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped low. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, there are other parts of this blessing. We don't have enough time, unfortunately, to go into all of them. I want to key into this specific section, these three verses. This is easily one of the most incredible blessings in all of Scripture. Easily one of the most amazing blessings in the Bible. And we are to understand that this isn't just a blessing from Jacob to Judah, that this was God's desire for the blessing to go to and through Judah. And so here's the blessing. These words in in Genesis 49 say effectively that all of Judah's brothers will 
bow down before him. They will praise him. Your brothers will praise you. What kind of blessing is that? Then he says, your hand is going to be on the neck of your enemies. In other words, Judah will never fail to subdue anyone who opposes him. In other words, he will be unstoppable. He will not be able to be opposed. And he calls him a lion's cub, a, a lion, a crouched lion who is dangerous and really lethal. For them, describing a lion was describing something that should not be trifled with, should not be messed with. He, he says, who even dares to rouse Judah from his sleep lest something horrible happen to you when you do that? You don't rouse a lion. This is a picture of unintimidated power. In other words, he is a ferocious lion. And then finally in verse 10, even more amazing than those things, is that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until tribute should come to him, as well as the obedience of all the peoples. Now, what in the world does that mean? Peoples here, the word peoples means everyone who isn't included in the first section, the first eight, everyone who's outside the family, who's already praising him and worshiping him. Everyone, well, effectively it means every single people group you can conceive of in the world. All of the peoples will come to him in obedience. The entire world will bow down to this man. And so this is the language of a king. This is the language of a Lord, someone who is in power. And if you were here last Sunday, some of this should not be surprising to you because if you remember um, the covenant that Abraham received from God was a covenant that said, there will be kings that will come from you, Abraham. And the same exact thing was repeated to Jacob when he was blessed by God. This is a promise that has already existed for years and years and years. And Jacob is now mediating this reality to Judah specifically, undeserving and sinful Judah, who, if we're honest has no right to be king. Not a king at all, no less this king who is the king over all peoples. And so we're left with the question, does Judah actually become a king, this king? And the answer, of course, is no. He does not become king, and nor does his son Perez. Neither of them are kings. And so why in the world, back in Ruth 4, are they issuing this blessing on Boaz, the blessing of the house of Perez. Why do that? He only has, Perez only has two children. He's not a king. He's not royal. There's no, there's no value in that, at face value at least, in, that, in using that family to bless. So I want to read that blessing one more time. Ruth 4, 11 through 12. And let's see if we can find something that we may not have covered yet. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. I wonder if when we read that passage initially, last week or this week, you spotted the part of the passage that we haven't 
engaged at all, that we haven't seen it all and looked at all. In between the house of Israel in verse 11 and the house of Perez in verse 12, there is a statement by these witnesses tucked in between those two houses. And it says, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. This is a call for Boaz, who has just redeemed Ruth to be his wife, to act worthy in Ephrathah and to be renowned or famous in Bethlehem. So both Ephrathah and Bethlehem are the same geographic location. It's the city that Boaz lives in. It's the territory that he lives in. And so at the center of this blessing of these two houses, these two major houses that they're or perceivably major houses that they are taking into this blessing is a charge for Boaz to be worthy, for him to, to be worthy. And to be fair to the original witnesses, they're genuinely and sincerely charging this to Boaz. They're focusing on Boaz here for his nobility to continue beyond the redemption of Ruth and into whatever offspring he might have, and for him to be known by it. But for us, who have been looking back through the lens of all the promises that God has given for this family, and for this line, and for the house of Judah, a blessing that he originally received from his father, but by the hand of God, we have to ask the question that others might have been asking at this same point. Will Boaz become the king that was spoken of to Judah. Is he going to be the king? There's going to be a king. It wasn't Judah, and it wasn't Perez, and it wasn't anyone in his offspring. Is Boaz the one that will become the king? And the answer again is no. Boaz never becomes a king, and he only has one son that we know of. You know this from the passage we read already. Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son that we all know. His name is David. Neither Obed nor Jesse nor Boaz before them are kings, but David is a king. In fact, he is the first king in the line of Judah. And for a time, it genuinely appears that this blessing that is carried from generation to generation to generation, has finally found a home in David, the king. That after years and years of a great question of whether or not this blessing would ever be received, finally, people might be saying that when Jacob said to Judah, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, they were talking about David. Perhaps he is the one who will be renowned in Bethlehem because he's worthy. But David, even before he commits his most grievous sins, is told in 2 Samuel 7 this by God. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God has not forgotten his promise to Judah. He hasn't forgotten his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before Judah. He has not forgotten his promises. There is a king who is coming, and God will most certainly establish his kingdom. And the house that this man builds won't be for the name of Israel. It won't be for the name of Judah or the name of Perez or the name of Boaz or the name of David. It will be a house, God says, for my name. A house for the name of God. And it says that this throne, this kingdom, will be forever. Meaning that when this king comes, he will truly be the king of all kings. He will never pass out of existence. He will reign forever. And although this person will come from the line of David and the the tribe of Judah, God says of this man, somehow, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And we find that though Solomon, David's biological son, does build a temple for God, does build a house for God and receives some of this blessing on his account, a part of it, Solomon is not ultimately the offspring that God is talking about here. The thing about Solomon and the thing about David and the thing about Boaz and the thing about Judah is that all of them are not worthy of this blessing. They're not worthy. They're not worthy to receive the blessing that Jacob spoke of. That's the main point of Judah's life. That's the main point of Genesis 38. He isn't worthy of the blessing that God's giving him through Judah. And David wasn't worthy of it either. Neither was Solomon. And yet God in his grace and his mercy will use the line of Judah and the line of David to bring someone into the world of whom it can finally be said, he is worthy. And so in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there is a picture painted of God on his throne in absolute power and glory. And in his hand, he has a scroll. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. And this scroll represents all authority, all power, everything that Jacob spoke of to Judah, everything there sealed up to bring history to a close by righting every wrong and by reversing every evil. And so I want to read to you these verses, first few verses in in chapter 1 of Revelation and hear what John says about the one who is worthy. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, 
weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So the scroll and the seven seals represent the conclusion of human history, the conclusion of the story, not a story, the story, the ultimate conclusion. So whoever this is that has the authority must be the same king in Genesis 49 because it is through that God-given authority that evil and suffering is brought finally after ages and ages to an end and justice and peace finally prevail on the earth. This is God's appointed king, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And he embodies in its fullness the fulfillment of every single promise, every single promise God has made to his people throughout the ages. Every promise he made to Abraham, every promise he made to Jacob, every promise he made to Judah, and every promise that he made to King David is embodied in this one man, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And it says, he has conquered. He's conquered. That's the reason given for him to be able to open the scroll. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and break the seven seals. So what does it mean for him to conquer? Well, in verse 9 of this same chapter in Revelation 5, it tells us exactly what this means. It says in verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The promise to David was that this king would build a house for the name of God. That was the promise, that there would be a house that would be built by God through David's offspring. But when that promise was made, God never told David how it would happen, how it would come about, how that house would be built. He never mentioned that. He never told David the cost of building this house would come at the king's own life. And yet, here it is, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. The Greek word there for slain is spadzo, which is really the word that you would use in Greek to say the word butcher or slaughter. So they're singing, you were slaughtered on that cross. And by your blood you ransomed people from every nation for God. You bought these people, every single person you purchased. So that was the cost of the house. That was the cost for the house of God. The cost to build this house was the rejection in the death of this lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of God, which is interesting because when New Testament authors, uh, uh, many of them, describe this event, they point to a passage in Isaiah. When they describe 
this man being slain. They point to a passage in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, that says this. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes will not be in haste. In other words, God is building a house. That's what this verse is about. I'm building a house. I'm laying a foundation for this house and I'm going to start with a stone. I have a stone. It's the cornerstone. It's the stone by which the entire house is set and aligned and set up. It is the most critical stone in the house. And it says God picks out a tested stone, a stone that has proven its worth, a stone that is precious in his sight. He loves this stone. He loves this stone. And it's saying through Isaiah that whoever believes in this stone, whoever trusts in this stone will not be in haste. In other words, this stone, if you believe in this stone, trust in this stone, you will never be put to shame. You can believe and trust in this stone. This is God's stone chosen by him. But when we look back into Psalm 118, verse 22, we read this line about the same cornerstone. Listen to this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the same cornerstone from Isaiah 28, the same stone that God determined to build this house on, the stone he loves, this precious, worthy stone. And yet the people who are entrusted with building it cast it out. They reject it. They throw it outside the city and they discard it as though it's trash. The stone that God looked upon and said, you are precious, you are worthy, you are proven, you are my stone. So this is how God builds his house. Look what it says here in verse, uh, in Psalm 118. It says, this is the Lord's doing. This wasn't done by man. Even though men acted it out, this was not ultimately done by man. This was God's plan. It was his design that through the rejection Jesus would experience, a house would be built, not for the glory of man, but for the glory of God. He wanted to make it clear, this isn't for Judah's name. This isn't for David's name. This is a house for my name. This house ultimately exists for my glory. And we know this because of what 1 Peter 2 says. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter calls this house, the house we've been looking at this entire time, a spiritual house composed of living stones. That's all of us, all of us through Jesus. And we can, as part of that house, offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. And he tells us here, that tells us the reason that this house was made, the reason that this house was built ultimately. God had promised David, your offspring will build a house for my 
name. That's why this house exists. And it is through Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the King of Kings. And the house that he is building for, the, for his father's name or for his name will be for his father. It will be for his father because of what was promised to David. He will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. This is what the root of David accomplished. This is what the, tri- the lion of the tribe of Judah secured. Unhindered worship for his father by building this house. And so when we look at this blessing, two verses in the book of Ruth, and really just the two houses that encompass them, although it's pointing to the immediate house of Boaz, it is calling into view the house of all houses, the ultimate reason we have the word house in our lexicon that God was building a house for his name. Between those blessings, we see, may you act worthily in Ephrathah, may you be renowned in Bethlehem. Those witnesses are addressing Boaz, but that, that, com- that call, that desire, that yearning is flowing through the centuries and landing on one man, one human being, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. He alone is worthy to be king. So we're going to sing in a few minutes and participate in communion. And communion really is our memorialization of the rejection of the cornerstone so that the house of God can be built. We're remembering the cost of the house in communion. And when we do that, I'd like to reflect on the simple fact that we are not different from Judah or from David or from any of these people in history. We're not. We are not worthy to even be part of this house, to even be a living stone in this house. We should all have been rejected. We should have all been thrown out and cast outside for our sin, for our natural hostility toward God and toward making his name renowned. Yet Jesus was rejected for us. God in his love and mercy let his son be cast out so that we could be brought in. That's what happened on the cross. And so if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you trust him, if you've become a living stone in the house of God, you are welcome to receive these elements, the bread and the cup, and to worship him, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the king of kings, because he alone is worthy to open the scroll and break its seven seals. He alone is worthy to be called the cornerstone of the house of God. And we are his house. We are his house, as the author of Hebrews said. And as you take the bread and cup, I want you to consider something with me. This is something I considered just as I was doing preparation for this message. It hit me. I want you to think about that last day, the final day. The final day when you see him, the line of Judah, the root of David for the first time face to face. That day's gonna happen. That's a real day. That's not fiction. It's not some weird thing we're imagining. You will stand face to face with Jesus. And I think we can say the word worthy and we can ascribe it to Jesus a thousand times and never even really feel the weight of what that word will mean when we see him for the first time. I mean, can you imagine 
the joy you will feel personally, individually, rising up in your heart when you see him. He died for you. He died for you, and you were made for him. Like every molecule in your body was explicitly designed to enjoy him and worship him, and now you're seeing him. Every moment in your life, every moment in your life has been leading up to that one moment. And you're going to see him. And I imagine with tears of gladness streaming down my cheeks to see him smiling, calling me by name, that I will only be able to see, say three words. I imagine that I'll only be able to say and muster three words. And I think it will be, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. Because he is. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, your worth and the worth of your Son, Christ Jesus, is so infinitely beyond our capacity, even as human beings made in your image, to comprehend, to understand, and to enjoy the way that we've always been meant to enjoy. Colossians 1 says, all things were created through him, Jesus, and for him. We were made for him. To worship him, to know him, to believe in him, to trust him, to embrace him as our all-satisfying treasure. And yet because of our sin, there's so much chaos in our hearts and war with that reality. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts today as we worship, as we participate in communion, as we just reflect on the passages of Scripture we've read today to push back any resistance in our soul, anything that would cause us not to see your infinite worth in the worth of your Son, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that we would see with some kind of clarity, get a glimpse of his glory with some kind of clarity that would cause us to fall deeper in love with him. I pray that you would do that now, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.